This is the Do Better Podcast with Dr. Megan Miller and Joe Smith, launching you into the future of behavior analysis. Facebook live and we're perfect. Okay. So we're live on Facebook again. Sorry. We got kicked off. Um, if you missed why we're doing this episode, I apologize, but you should be able to catch up quickly and hopefully we get a few more people jumping in. Um, so first I'm just going to start with a little bit of a description of what is the practice to research gap or the research to practice gap. And then we'll look at the comments that people made about, um, you know, their ideas of research that we could be doing. So for me, as I went to Ohio State, I have my doctorate, I've done research. One of the things that kind of struck out to me when I was doing my doctorate, having been a practitioner for five years, was a lot of the researchers that I was encountering at the university setting or wherever else researchers exist, didn't really seem to have any handle whatsoever on the, the issues that I had been facing as a practitioner. And anytime I do webinars or presentations, I have various procedures that I've come up with based on the science of behavior analysis. And I'm constantly asked, well, where's the research for that? Um, Steve Ward is in a similar boat, as is Robert Schramm and Mary Barbera and a few other behavior analysts where we've, you know, just as behavior analysts, knowing the science that we know, we've come up with strategies to effectively provide services to our clients. And they're not, there's not going to be a research study for every single thing we come up with. Um, but it's also really disappointing because when we're looking at disseminating our science to students and newer practitioners in the field, if it's not in those journals and people aren't like attending our webinars or trainings that we're doing, how would they contact these effective procedures. So as a practitioner, it's very difficult to do my own research for two reasons. One, I just don't really like it. <laughs> I want I want to get in there and solve problems right away. I can't be beholden to a research design and a research study where I have to follow certain methods and I can't make changes when I know I make moment-to-moment -moment decisions with my clients. I am responding to the learner in the moment every step of the way. So if I'm doing a research study, that's impossible. I can't do that. Um, when I did my dissertation, that was a real big issue for me because the students that I was working with, one wasn't making progress. And I knew how to help him make progress, but I couldn't do anything about it because it was a research study. So that's one. The other is I just don't have time. I can only allocate my time to so many things. And I have certain passions and things that I'm most effective at, and that's what I focus on. So, um, so for me, it, it's frustrating that there are so many stellar researchers in our field that produce really amazing studies on a lot of things, but that there seems to be a disconnect between um, what practitioners are feeling and experiencing versus what researchers find as important to study and that motivates them. They're in a, usually a laboratory setting. They're not out in the applied world encountering the issues that we're encountering as practitioners. 
so it's based on their own history. I get it. And they're, you know, sources of reinforcement, but if they spent more time, it almost should be a requirement in an applied field that if you're going to do research that maybe you have some sort of practitioner connections, whether you're providing some services yourself or you have groups that you're consulting with so that you can really get a close tie in on like, what are the practitioner issues that practitioners are facing? And then my last soapbox thing with this, I just get really frustrated when it's called the research to practice gap. (laughs) Uh, As a practitioner, I read the studies, I go to conferences, I learn a ton. Um, I know that from like a broad range, there is a lot of research out there that maybe not all practitioners know about. Um, And so there is a little bit of a gap there. But my, my own personal experience is that the gap is way bigger going the other way, the loop feeding back to the researchers from the practitioners on like what the problems are. I've tried connecting with some researchers who are studying things that are meaningful, but not quite there where like it would be beneficial for a practitioner and they don't want to hear from me. (laughs) So there's sometimes that like, it's almost like an ivory tower type of experience where it's, you know, I'm a researcher. I know what I'm doing. This is my lab. These are the things I'm studying. You're just a practitioner. You don't know anything. That's the attitude I get a lot of the time. So that sort of like holier than thou attitude, um, it's not everyone. And I'm not trying to like knock people who do research. There's especially like Dr. Hanley um, and uh, Joe, or sorry. um, Well, Joe Chian and Justin Leaf are doing a lot of research as well. And um, Jim Moore and obviously Dr. Claire St. Peter. So there are people out there that are doing this like practitioner based research, but there's not enough for an applied field that we're in. So that's my like quick version of the rant. If you want to learn more about that, you can um, listen to the behavioral observations podcast. Joe, do you have anything to add on the rant piece before we look at people's research ideas? <laughs> no, I just know that when we started this feed on Facebook, um, it the amount of comments that came in from clinicians were amazing as far as like what they were seeing in the field and what their gap between um, the applied piece and then the research piece. So it's, so there is definitely an issue here where we need to address and come up with a solution for us to move forward and do better. Love it. And I do know um, one of the things, sorry, seriously, the last thing I'll say, (laughs) move into it. Um, One of the things that also was kind of um, eye-opening for me when I was at Ohio State, we did a lot of work in the schools. And, um, and there was, you know, discussion with people that were teachers that were outside of our field. And one of their frustrations was the, um, the faculty from Ohio State or whatever university would come in because Columbus has a ton of universities come into this like lower socioeconomic school and they would have a grant to study something. And there was never a conversation with the school of, hey, what are your problems? Like, what are things we could help solve for you? What do your students need? What do you need to be more successful? It was, hey, I'm trying to do this research. I have this money. You know, will you participate? And of course, the, the teachers were so eager to learn. They, they said, sure, yes, we'll participate. But guess what? Once the grant's over, what happens? Nobody's there, right? The research stops. The university pulls out. And the school is left sometimes worse off than it was to begin with. So, um, so like keeping in mind just from mostly like an ethical standpoint, 
if you're going to be conducting research in applied settings, like we have to have discharge criteria for our clients. So the same is probably true for conducting research when you're working in applied settings as well. You don't just pop in for your grant, get your data and leave. <laughs> um, so that's like a bit of, I think that's part of the reason when we look from the research to practice side that we see a little bit less of the application, especially in schools, that leaves such a bad taste in one's mouth if like the only time researchers come in is to get their data and then go and they don't actually provide any sustainable assistance um, for the school that carries over for like future years. Have you experienced that at all, Joe, with like, have people come in with you being in the school system and done any research or anything? As far as research, no. Um, we're kind of very guarded as well in the school system, just not having outsiders come in um, because we have our own systems in place and we have our own uh, structures and routines and rituals that we, you know, abide by. So as far as trying to think anything new, it has to come from the superintendent or um, central office to make those changes or um, for, for, I mean, in order for us to be successful or even to get something that we want implemented, we had to go through higher ups um, to approve of it. And a lot of times that we, we get turned down um, because it doesn't abide with our structure or routine. It's not, it's something out of box. It's something really new. Um, and that's where, um, I get, I see myself like, okay, I want to try this, but there's no way I can do it without support from my principal or superintendent. Yep. Yeah. That would be difficult too. Um, so I finally figured out how to actually see the Facebook live and people's comments. So um, I saw one from Maggie. I hope you don't mind me um, saying that you're the one who posted the comment. It is public and live for those of you who didn't notice. Um, I, uh, I really appreciate what you suggested about Skinner and the, his methods. And I know that there's some other really great um, books on how to do applied research the problem is, I at least for me, <laughs> I made attempts to um, to make you know be able to be more flexible and nimble in the research that I was doing, and maybe it's because I was just getting in my doctorate. I didn't actually have my doctorate yet, but I wasn't you know allowed to do those things. It was like this is your methods, and you have to stick to this to be done, and like check off that box and get out of here. So um, hopefully it's the case that in additional, um, you know, once you actually have your doctorate, uh, that people are a little bit more flexible on the methods that they employ with their research. To be honest, that's an area that is um, a kind of a gap for me. And I know, Maggie, that you do a lot of great research as well, and you have students studying with you um, that are producing some really great research too. So feel free to comment additionally on that. I can't see the screen right now because I'm on a different screen inviting people to join our Facebook Live, but um, I think that that's really important that we're making sure that we're teaching people flexible research methods and using those resources. And additionally, if you're working at a university, allowing your students that flexibility, not being afraid to let them like break out of the box a bit. I know um, Ashley, who was at USF and she presented at PACA, the Pan-African Autism Congress, on her research that she did in Africa, getting her 
master's degree at USF and initially um, was very difficult to get approval for that research. So I think sometimes people are really focused on helping their students be successful and like get their thesis or doctoral research done and get out the door. But if you have someone that comes in and has a passion about something and it is outside of the box and it will be a little bit more work, if you're, you know, their, um, their advisor, you know, seeing if there is a way to make that happen, because I think that will really help in terms of improving the practitioner research base as well. Um, and then Maggie also said, are there any ideas for how to get more practitioners a pipeline to the research-focused population? Um, and I, I don't have any. If anybody that's on does, feel free to type those in the comments. I, um, you know, I, like I said, I've tried at conferences or through email sometimes, like, touching base. Again, there are some people that are receptive to it, but others are not. <laughs> so, um, so it's been kind of interesting to see how, you know, sort of, overly focused on the laboratory type research, some people can be in an applied field and not take into account what the practitioners say um, they're facing as an issue. And then um, Maggie also added, we need to educate IRBs about our methods. I've been lucky to have a very supportive IRB, but that took several seminars and workshops to get them on board. If you work in a university, it's a good place to start. And I saw um, Corinne and Jordan are on, and I know um, Corinne's not at a university right now, but could be if she wanted to. And Jordan, I know you are. So hopefully you, you all are, can make that good fight at some point. Maggie, maybe we can have you share some of your resources on how you've been successful with that so we can help disseminate to others as well. All right. Anything else to add before we get into the thread, Joe? Um, no, nothing right now. Um, okay. And I know there's like about a 30 second delay from what we say to <laughs> people um, commenting and participating. So I will um, kind of try to slow down a little bit to make sure we can see what people are saying as they chime in on their comments. So uh, as we mentioned for this episode, what we wanted to talk about is some research ideas that people have to help inform researchers as practitioners, what are some um, things that need to be studied for our field. So this was posted on Christmas Eve and it was surprisingly, um, it has 127 comments right now. I think about half of those are probably mine though. So um, the first comment with uh, an idea for research was um, looking at issues that are caused by poverty and living in a rural area with a discussion around the population that this person was serving is in a constant state of crisis and they're unable to keep appointments, run interventions, um, or don't want or understand the idea of parent training. So um, this is obviously a big issue in a lot of different dissemination, not just within behavior analysis, but just in general. Like how do we serve more rural populations and especially populations that don't have as many resources available to them? I know when I was in Manitoba, they were doing some um, pretty interesting um, projects up there. The, the, the way that that province is set up is very spread out. And one of the behavior analysts was telling me how he has to fly by a helicopter to get to his clients. Um, so I did tag Brendan Bohr in there as someone that might know a little bit more about the work that they're doing in Manitoba. But if anyone else is on that would like to share, please feel free to comment. And um, Dr. Claire St. Peter also recommended some telehealth um, resources and specifically um, was referencing 
the, the research being done on effective interventions in that area. And I think that that could be really helpful too, but then we still get into the resources piece. I know with the research that we're doing at Florida State, well, that I'm assisting, I just do the assessments. I don't really have a, a um, play in that beyond, but they're doing research to, to try to disseminate effective practices as well. And they, part of their grant was to have iPads for the participants. So that's helped um, in terms of, you know, the telehealth piece, but that is something you have to take into account if you're serving like rural areas, there might not be <laughs> access to internet. Um, or if it's, you know, if there's less resources available, they may not have, you know, a computer or a phone or a tablet to use as well. Um, and then of course, Molly um, Ola from the Global Autism Project is doing a lot of amazing work throughout the world in different locations for looking at how do we improve capacity and their big motto is do with, not for. And I think that's a big thing in our field, um, both as practitioners and researchers, I kind of mentioned this already, but we, that is, should be our role going into the places, especially that have a different culture than what you've grown up or a different history, whether you're working, you know, in a rural community or, or in a big city, every family you encounter or every teacher you encounter, every whatever population client you're serving is going to have a different history than you. So being able to work with them to, to you know, identify the issues that they're facing and improve is obviously going to be a lot more productive. But unfortunately, a lot of the training that I received and I know others receive is that we come in as like the experts and we lay down the law and say, here you go. This is what you have to do. Um, and shaping kind of seems to be out the window and as a thing that like doesn't really exist uh, when we know that shaping is super effective. So um, we may not have very much time with the clients that we're trying to serve, but that could be something to look at. You know, how can we best work with these different communities and come in as an, you know, uh, getting informed about what they would like help with. Um, and with, you know, even only having maybe a few hours a year, what big impacts can we train in those few hours to really improve um, the, the lives of everyone in that area? And then there was one other comment on this part of the thread that said, their agency has started to use ACT throughout each service, which um, helps the families identify their values and goals and implement their treatment plans. And I think that's really helpful as well. Um, not everyone in our field is going to feel comfortable or might live in areas where like maybe from licensing laws, that's not allowed. It doesn't have to be ACT. Anything that you can learn about working and collaborating with others is going to help <laughs> you be a better practitioner. And I think obviously additional research in that as well, like how do we train behavior analysts to, um, to help families identify what their goals are and how to move forward with those. And our parent training webinar that I did in March of 2018, I talk about motivational interviewing. And that's a, a field or an area of research that I think as a field, we could learn more about to help with the work that we do with different populations. Joe, what are your thoughts on serving rural populations or areas with less resources. Have you encountered that at all? And do you know of any research in those areas? Um, this is an area that I'm really not familiar with just because of the area that I, I live in. It's just very populated and we have a lot of services here. Um, can you talk about more what telehealth looks like? Because like I'm still um, new to the idea that we're using um, ABA principles with uh, telehealth uh, methods. 
sure. So, I mean, I think that's kind of an area in and of itself that's receiving a lot more research too. Um, so, you know, I provide telehealth as one of my services right now, and it's, it varies depending on the client. Some of my families I see once a month, some of my families I see weekly, um, in terms of watching the actual clients, I, you know, they, sometimes they share videos on a secure server. Sometimes I watch the child live. Sometimes I'm getting up at two o'clock in the morning to stream in and watch over, you know, cameras that they have set up in their house. Um, so that's how it is for me. I honestly haven't read a ton of the research currently on the different telehealth models that are out there. I know that there's some research being done um, I think in Nebraska on challenging behavior and training people to do functional assessment. I know Dr. Hanley's group is doing research on that as well. Um, his, one of his students right now, Rachel, is doing research on training parents on the practical functional assessment. And, um, and his new company has a, a telehealth option and they're doing training. Um, also, they're doing training courses to help train practitioners. Rebecca just posted a study from um, the Journal of Autism and Developmental Disorders called Preliminary Findings of a Telehealth Approach to Parent Training in Autism. So I'll post that in the show notes as well. But I think it's an area of research that there's still a ton of work to do to figure out what's the most effective way to do that. And then um, Rebecca also posted conducting functional analyses of problem behavior via telehealth too. So I know that doesn't really answer the question completely, but <laughs> um, but I think it's it's a model that's going to vary depending on the, the populations being served. Yeah, I kind of figure because like I know for us, like we, if we want to see a doctor, um, we have an app that we can um, have appointment and go and we have video chat. But for ABA, it's completely different because you just can't have one session be done with it either. Right. And that's, so I think that's the coolest thing. We have that here too, through um, one of the, the hospitals and my um, mother-in-law was here last year and was sick and they did her whole thing via telehealth and like had her open her mouth and like look inside her throat. And it was so interesting. Um, and they were able to tell if she had a bacterial infection or a viral infection just from that. And they were right because she didn't believe them and went to an actual doctor. <laughs> and They said the same thing. <laughs> she just didn't trust that that was true. Um, but you're right. And behavior analysis, it's so much different. I know that Adam Dreyfus presented at ChatCon and that was something that Ryan commented on the thread. Um, they have a company that they've started called Answers Now. And I've seen various um, different companies pop up like this, but I'm always like, so nervous about it because, you know, Adam Dreyfus, he's in Virginia and he's, you know, a behavior analyst and everything. So I'm not questioning him, but I do question a, there's a lot of newbies in our field right now who are having, we all have difficulties ourselves when we're first certified and just working directly with families and providing effective services. Our field as a whole grew really quickly. And we're kind of in this like big, you know, kind of growing pain situation where, um, where we really need to, to make sure that we're providing the most effective services. And, and, um, and I worry that if we're adding in some of the new technology where you get even less information and less access to, um, to what's going on, that we would actually be in a, in a place of difficulty. But that doesn't mean I'm not saying that it's not effective or anything. I just think there's a lot of work that needs to be done to, to figure that out, figure that one out. Um, 
I'm not watching the comments, so I'm going to look over at those. Um, Maggie said, this is definitely an area where we can learn from other fields as well. There's a lot of research on telehealth approaches to other types of medical devices. Um, so let's see. I was seeing if there's any other telehealth ones. I don't see right now. Um, so I do, and I think that's it too. Like instead of reinventing the wheel, look and see. We just talked about how doctors are providing telehealth. Like, okay, what's out there? What's working? What's effective? It seems like starting with very specific focus, you know, of uh, this is an issue I can help you with. And this is the information I would need in order to help you with that issue would be probably the best way to start approaching it. But again, I just, this is not an area I know as much about to really make a lot of comments on. Kelsey said, we can talk about telehealth, but how do we get individuals in rural communities to seek it out? Because outside of the U.S. where insurance may offer it in other areas of the world, parents have to know to seek it out. Yeah. And a lot of insurance doesn't cover it either. Like through TRICARE, you can have um, intervention provided, but if but not through telehealth for ABA. Um, UBH here in the States, Optum does have a telehealth waiver you can sign, but that's, you know, not every insurance company is doing that either. So um, you know, again, that brings us back to how do we help in those rural communities if, unless someone has like a grant or something that they're using now, there are a lot of really cool websites and things now um, that have free training modules that we could at least hopefully work on disseminating and maybe building capacity by giving access to the technology to view those um, those resources. But um, but again, that brings up issues as well. Like, how, what do what do they use? What computer is available, or what tablet is available to view the courses? And then, how do you apply? Um, that information and all of those kinds of things. Um, I saw a few other comments come in. Joe, did you have any that you wanted to respond to? No. Um, uh, Selena said that while in grad school, I completed a dual track program consisting of ABA and specialized a specialization clinical counseling. So I was exposed to multiple theoretical orientations, acting one of them on the counseling side. And she said that I can't even begin to express how much the counseling experience has come in handy in my career. Yes. And I was just going to reply back saying like, yeah, I have used some of the ACT principles in my classroom and it has helped out a lot in the classroom as well. And I think that's an area that I would love to see more research being done on implementing. I know that we have that in curriculum, but I would love to see it more in um, um, the research done for EBD classroom and see the, the research and how effective it is compared to like other programs out there like um, second step or behavioral uh, skills trainings um, because those are the programs that we have been doing in our um, classroom right now because it's, you know, demanded by uh, the central office or, and the superintendent to tell, uh, and they told us that we have to implement these uh, different um, curriculums instead of, hey, these are the a slew of different uh, curriculums that you can provide your students. Choose one. Yep. All right. I'm seeing 
Um, and that's obviously like difficult too. There, that's a whole like separate issue. With, like yeah. these are the things you're allowed to use and nothing else. Um, yeah. Okay, so lots of great comments. I'm really excited with how interactive everyone's um, being on our our live feed of the podcast. Thank you all for participating. And just so I don't forget, um, Maggie mentioned that Jen Radcliffe for her master's project wrote a wonderful paper on rural services with some great ideas for future steps. So that's something I'll try to look at and put in the, um, well, I don't know that I'll be able to put it in the show notes, but I'll get some more information from her on that. Um, and Barbara is asking for links for the training modules. So I will definitely put those in the show notes. And if I have a chance while Joe's talking, I'll try to link some as well. Um, I actually found a new one yesterday that I was going to post about and see if people had used yet. So I'll try to get that one in there too. Um, so, okay. So the next one, the next comment is, um, about descriptions and research. Joe, do you want to read that one? Yeah. Let me find it in the link. And which one was it? It's, um, including descriptions and research. So it's the next comment down like main thread. Okay. So, do you see it? Yeah. Okay. So it says including, uh, in the clinical setting, I often see the mistake of it is effective treatment because it clearly shows improvement on the pretty graph, but does it actually help the client? Does it matter what it looks like on paper if the client will never ever need to know that? Or maybe sure, uh, or maybe sh it's good to teach shapes to an early learner, but would play skills be a better use of their, their treatment time right now? given their age and building the pivotal skills needed to move into a natural setting where they can learn shapes with all their same age peers. It's not enough just to say if this is a skill deficit, so it should be tar should be targeted. We look, we fix it. I mean, we, and look, we fix it and then we have the skill now, but is it important that they name 20 shapes or know all their African animals? Um, but, so I have, so I run into this in it, in my setting as well um, with my learners. Um, we have our assessments that we give our students every year. It's the same assessment. Um, and based off that assessment, we choose IEP goals uh, to address uh, any school deficits that we see. Um, and this year, I, I work with second and third graders, and they have a lot of skill deficits on um, just shapes, um, skip county numbers, um, adding and subtracting basic math facts in their second and third grade. So I, based on the assessment um, that the school district gave me, that, that's what we're going to focus on. But there are so many more deficits um, behaviorally, with play, with, um, um, with turn taking that we could target that. But since we're an academic based school, we're focusing on academics. Um, so, um, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? I, well, yeah, I think it's really, um, a really important uh, area, I think, that gets pointed out 
just even from like a diversity standpoint too, we don't know when we look at a lot of our research articles, really a whole lot. And, you know, there might be mention that the child has a diagnosis of like autism or something, but that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, um, and then, you know, sometimes there's not even reporting of like their skill level or any prerequisite skills that they might've needed to be successful in the study. Um, but I, I really like the route that, um, that this particular suggestion in terms of like, why, why was it important for the learner to, to learn this skill? Why were they included in the study in the first place? A lot of the times when you read research studies, they make, you know, in the introduction, they lay the groundwork for why the study is being conducted and why it's important. Um, but then when they talk about the participants, they don't exactly explain, you know, was it just a convenient sample? <laughs> like these were the students that were available um, or was it really important to them? And then especially that last part about how it improved their life. I've mentioned this in a, a, some of the other posts and things that I've made, but it was really eye-opening in April. I went to the Autism Partnership Foundation Conference or Autism, it's Autism Partnership with Justin Leaf and Ron Leaf and that group, but I forget if it's the foundation that runs it or if it's just the main company, but either way, um, they have a conference in April in California and Kathy Lord presented on a lot of really interesting things relating to autism. And, um, one of the basically pleas that she made with us as behavior analysts is to focus on the why and not just check off a bunch of boxes. We are not here to fill in a bunch of boxes on the VB map or the ABLES are, um, and when you go to teach a skill, as the practitioner, you should also be thinking, why? Why are we teaching this skill right now? What is it important? Why is this important for this child right now? And what impact is it going to have on their future? Um, and that a lot of times that's not happening. People are just like blindly going through and checking off a bunch of boxes. And to have someone who's a prolific researcher in the field of autism say that to a room full of behavior analysts, clearly she's encountered some situations. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, for her to say that to us, right? Um, and not be upset about it. So, um, and she was literally like begging us, like please pay attention to what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, and the, the really interesting thing, and I didn't include this um, as much as I should have as a research idea, what they're finding, one of the things that they're finding they are doing some research on, on that piece. Like what, how does this affect their whole lives? And they had one study that they did with parents where they did a play sample with the parents and, um, you know, did, took baseline measures of the children. And then the children went to their intervention and then they took, um, another play sample after intervention, the intervention showing all of these skills mastered child's making great progress. Guess what? the play sample showed no improvement whatsoever with the parent. And they were baffled, right? Like, okay, this kid's supposedly mastering all these skills, but their play sample doesn't look any better than it did six months ago. Well, they had the, the interventionist do the play sample with the child, and guess what? There was a difference. Because, A, the interventionist has, the, has been trained, knows how to and motivate and reinforce and prompt and do all of the things to get the play happening. Um, but also the parent hadn't received any training. The child had just been in a room with the interventionist for 40 hours a week for six months. Well, how does that affect their overall life and their outcomes? What effect is that going to have when they go to kindergarten um, and they're in a classroom with a bunch of other students? How does that prepare them for the future? Um, so looking at those types of things and like if that doesn't help you really 
hit home on like why parent training is important <laughs> and why we need to make sure that the children are spending time with their parents and mastering skills in that way. Um, I, I don't really know what else would make anyone think that parent training is super important. Um, so anyway, kind of got off on a little tangent there as I tend to do, but I do think this is a really, you know, key area, not just in the research, but just as practitioners, you know, we need to be making sure we're focused on the why. Um, and then, so there are some comments on the, um, the side. So Maggie said, my biggest pet peeve is spending time teaching kids, teens to tie their shoes. Even my running shoes are slip-ons these days. Just skip the laces altogether, not socially significant. So that's true, right? Like there's a ton of different skills like that, that, you know, we're kind of with our histories. Oh, this is important. But when you really look in the grand big scheme of things and all of the skills that need to be learned, probably mm -hmm. not that big of a deal. Um, Katie unless, said, oh, go ahead. Unless their parents, I mean, unless the only shoes they have are shoes that have laces on them. Right. And that's a perfect example of, of the why and like pulling in the context, right? Maybe yeah. those are the only shoes available to them and they really just absolutely have to learn how to tie their shoes. And the parents don't want to get the, uh, the elastic shoelaces that you can get on the shoes that actually keeps a, that replaces like shoelaces because that's popular too. Yep. Yeah, those are really helpful. Um, Katie said, love this comment. I think this is a downside to assessments. I often encounter programming that is wrote from the assessments and gaps and moving down the list as one is mastered. It seems sometimes analysis is lost when we program like this. Also need to consider social validity of what we're working on. I agree that research does not always account for social validity. Instead, sometimes it focused on addressing the question. It would be helpful if we could at least get more of a full picture. Um, and then Barb was asking what assessments we use. And I saw, Joe, that you commented on some that you use in the schools. We also have a webinar from the Do Better Movement um, on assessment that I did in February of 2018. So I'll post that link as well. Maggie has a very interesting thing that they're doing for the DBA SIG, a coffee and CE chat in a few weeks titled What Neurotypical BCBAs Need to Know About Serving the ASD Community. And they're having a panel of individuals with autism who also work in behavior analysis share their perspectives on how we can do better. So hopefully you all can join. Maggie, I hope you post about that in the group so people can sign on for it. And then um, the next comment down says, advocating for clients is a skill that needs to be learned and taught. Also learning to use our clinical judgment. So. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. And then Maggie has another good point about the shoes. So um, wouldn't it be cheaper to just get them some slip-ons and pay for hours of treatment? <laughs> so that's possible. If they're in the school, though, and they're going to school, um, so there's not, like, money being paid out, and there really is not a way to get the slip-on. So, again, it's just looking at all of those different, like, variables and factors instead of just, like, a, you know, this is it. Um, I love that we can have discussions where, somebody can say, oh, but what about this? And what about that? And we can just all sort of brainstorm about it and not, you know, get upset or, um, you know, be judgy or um, territorial about like, no, my answer is the correct one. Um, so if, in the field of behavior analysis, it's really important to be open and, and ready to brainstorm ideas. And this is the whole reason why we decided to do the Facebook Live today, because I, because 
I love that how interactive everyone is and how we're all working together. Yes. So, yeah. We can all learn more by bringing all of our histories together. Exactly. <laughs> all right. So now um, the next one, uh, again, Joe, do you want to read the next one? Because this one's about the classroom. So you might have more to say about this one than me. All right. Perfect. All right. So the next comment down um, it says, I'm a Jenna teacher with background in ABA. My question is this, I use ABA strategies in the, my classroom to deal with behaviors. And my students with severe behaviors um, improve immensely in that they are under instructional control. What happens then when the next year, what happens then when the next year the behavior returns and escalated in the, in a new classroom? I feel that I'm missing something or doing something wrong. Um, I want to say that a, you're probably doing absolutely nothing wrong. You're doing exactly what you were taught um, to work with your students in the classroom. The problem is that there's a gap between um, what you are doing and what the teacher in the in the new. I mean, the when the student transfers to a new classroom the next year, um, there is a gap between. Um, what you're, you're doing in your uh, structure routine is compared to this teacher. And those behaviors can come back if um, you, you both don't stay on the same page. I also believe that um, anything that you're taught, uh, that like during the summertime, there is definitely a time period where um, – so the student can learn, uh, relearn um, past behaviors. Um, the parents don't keep a ritual routine during the school year. Um, there could be other factors that happen uh, environmentally over the summer that you have no control over. Um, I, I, so that is an area in education that needs to be better address because I have seen more and more issues with um, with just um, students with severe problem behavior in the classroom and um, the school our, I mean the schools don't have any real reason or any good um, they don't have any um, they don't have the necessary supports for that student to carry over every single year. Um, I think a school, the school districts can do a much better job in this area. And there might be a school district out there that is doing a phenomenal job with keeping these students, um, these learners engaged and um, whatever progress they have made in one classroom, they continue that on the, with the next year. Um, but also, this is, comes in play where why an FBA and BIP is so important in the school setting, um, especially those students who have an I, um, IEP who has challenging behaviors. Um, so um, I don't think you're doing anything wrong. I think there's just there's a there's a huge gap between um, teachers and expectations expectations between classroom to classroom. Um, also, if you're in a gen ed setting, you're dealing with a uh, classroom size anywhere between 20 to 30 students. 
And that has a lot to deal with um, challenging behaviors too. Yeah. Um, on that particular thread, there were some suggestions uh, to the person that posted the comment to check out treatment relapse, context renewal, resurgence literature, especially any context change can cause relapse and effective treatment. Programming to mitigate the variables that may contribute to relapse is critical to reduce relapse. And I'll touch on that in a minute. Those were some of the thoughts I had as well. Um, and then kind of you touched on this a bit, Joe, it's a capacity building concern and like getting the larger administration on board with everyone having the same skill set um, so that it doesn't vary from one thing to another. But I'll tell you what, in a general um, education, sort of general ed, it was in the PhD program that I was in. It was a class that we had to take with like people from all different education backgrounds, not just the special ed ABA. And uh, there was a comment made by one of my colleagues about um, you know, how amazing her mom was as a teacher and whatnot. And the answer the professor gave, who is not a behavior analyst, was not everyone can be as amazing as your mom. <laughs> and it was just like, <laughs> wow, that's so that's the attitude that and so like changing it from a whole lot of different factors in terms of like, how do we, it's not just about getting them, you know, once they're in the school setting, they might be, you know, motivated to learn, but how do we change this mindset at the universities that like not all teachers are going to be great and like know how to do their job well? Like, oh, what if the medical departments thought like that? I mean, hopefully they don't. Um, yeah. <laughs> we all know doctors that aren't as good, but I hope that they're trying to train everyone up to 100% effectiveness. Um, and of course, that was just one person's opinion. But if that's the mindset of one person, um, I would imagine you would find that elsewhere. And I think we've all encountered those situations, too. So, you know, there's research being done at the school level, but also like more research needing to be done at the university level of how do we help um, in their teacher training or behavior analysis training, whatever, um, make sure that those skills are being developed in the training process, not not waiting until they're in the classroom. Um, and then there was also, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, it, uh, I, I was just saying that I know in like with my training as a teacher between um, my bachelor's and my master's, there was all there was some type of class and management class or special education class. But to be prepared for what you're going to deal with in the classroom and how to structure your classroom and work with um, students who have engaged in challenging behaviors or students who have autism, it's really important that these universities also develop a a uh, more comprehensive uh, curriculum based on special ed and um, um, working with students who have challenging behavior and and, and like teachers would need more resources or more classes that are a I mean that has ABA principles um, entwined with it um, because we're dealing also with a field that has um, teachers that are burnt out, tired. Some of them are brand new uh, teachers that have never had any experience before, only just classroom management, um, like a classroom management class, and that's it. And that may be taken their third year. Um, and then we have teachers that have been in the school setting for 20, 30 years that have never had a classroom management class, but they, or they, 
never um, had a class on like uh, any background in ABA principles, but they're doing a phenomenal job because they're, they learned that they might not know that they're ABA principles, but, but they learn what to, how to manage a classroom using those principles without really knowing that they're doing ABA principles. I mean, they're using ABA. Right. Yeah, their own, their behavior was just shaped by the consequences of yeah. their environment. <laughs> um, the other P, the other comment was on here was to um, potentially look at teaching self-management strategies and making sure to focus on the research from generalization that might be relevant to. So I think this particular post is really a, a good one because it points out an area that needs more research. Like, um, how do we like, help with that consistency from year to year that a student would have either in the classroom or if they're like in-home intervention, especially people like in the military that are moving quite a bit, that kind of thing. So how do we maintain that continuity of care um, and, and maintain the uh, effectiveness of the intervention and the outcomes? And of course, so there's that broad question, but then that's where we can start to pull in research that may not be specific to what you're asking about, but there is research on generalization. There is research on self-management, and we can take the findings from that research and apply it to our current situation and see if we can improve outcomes there. I do think it opens up a bunch of research ideas, though, that were kind of already mentioned about the building capacity and how do we get schools more on board or get universities more on board. But one of the things that I think is really important that Steve Ward talks about a lot, and if you haven't used his books, The Inventory of Good Learner Repertoire and The Teaching Good Learner Repertoires and Advanced Good Learner Repertoires, mm -hmm. I highly recommend checking those out because his a lot of his programming is focused on this kid's not going to be in this environment forever. So like we have this unique opportunity to set up a situation where we can provide certain supports and reinforcers and behavior plans and help them learn skills, but then all that's got to go. We need to fade that and we need to help them learn. We need to put them in situations where productive floundering can occur, where they have to persevere, where we're not just errorlessly teaching them, where we purposely set up like, you know, more adverse um, kind of situations once they have the skill set to navigate those. They need to learn how to sit with things being difficult and maintain the progress they've made. So if they do go into another classroom where the teacher's not as well versed or they're in a new environment like out in the community and people aren't doing, you know, every step of a behavior plan, they're cool with it. <laughs> they can yeah. tolerate that. Um, so if you're needing to learn more about how to like systematically set your learner up for success and then work on fading that out, I would recommend checking out, um, some of the stuff that Steve Ward has put out. We talk about it a bit in some of our webinars too, and um, it'll definitely be a big focus of some of the trainings for Do Better as we continue to move forward. Um, I don't know if anybody has anything to add. So I know our program, the school, the school program I work for, we do a pretty uh, decent job with that. Um, there's always room for improvement, um, but we do eventually start I mean, when they first come up with, first come to us, we place, I mean, put a lot of um, interventions in place. We put a lot of um, supports in place. And then eventually, as they're making progress, we fade that out by systematically um, taking that out. But also, they in, but we increase their, their, um, their, 
like increased their reinforcement or we increased the um, what they received by falling directions and um, being able to ignore their peers. Um, and we increased, I mean, we favored those, of course, but increase what they get to um, their their rewards are. Um, and we do a pretty good job by the time that they reach the last level. So we have a three-tier model. The last, by the time they get to the last model, we're looking at reintegration back into their uh uh, in a more, uh, least restrictive environment than what they're currently being served at. So, I mean, that's one thing that I will say that we're doing pretty, I mean, a decent job with. And when they go back, most of the time they go back and they stay back and they stay in a gen ed setting or whatever their least restrictive environment is. I love that your school is doing that. That's um, rare in my experience to encounter that. So that's incredible to hear about. We should definitely do another podcast episode on that okay. at some point to learn more about that process. Yeah, no, I'll definitely set that up and we can go through that process. So um, it's a very unique process. Um, it's been around since um, the 70s, I want to say. Um and it all start, started um, in Nashville, Tennessee. So we can definitely talk about that process. Okay, perfect. All right, so the, I wonder if, how many of these we're actually going to get through. <laughs> uh, we, for those of you who don't know, we typically record um, anywhere from an hour to two hours. Um, so it, thanks for hanging in. Feel free to leave, come and go. Um, but we're going to keep plowing through. So another one of the research suggestions was on the OBM podcast, Shannon Biagi was talking about targeting quick wins in organizations before trying to make any long haul larger changes. Wonder She wonders what quick wins would look like in a school on the organizational level. So this is kind of perfect with the previous one we were just talking about. Um, before we share our thoughts on this, I'll say what some of the comments suggested. Um, one person suggested to check out Deliberate Coaching by Dr. Paul Gavoni. Um, he has tons of experience doing exactly this. I haven't read that book yet, but it's on my list. Um, there, it was co-authored um, with Nick Weatherly. And then um, there's also a book called uh, Quick Wins <laughs> that you can check out as well. Um, so I'll try to post links to both of those. Um, one of the things that I thought about when reading this is at the school on the organizational level, obviously in our companies. Um, service provision, and then also with our clients, because again, sometimes people uh, kind of look too far at like the bigger goal, and they forget the quick wins or like the quick wins with the parent to help get that buy in. So what are you know, like, what's a, a list of potential things that we might want to look at as quick wins to use when we're providing services um, to help improve our effectiveness and having more studies focusing on, you know, what are some things that could potentially be quick wins that would be easy to implement? What did, what were your thoughts, Joe? Um, I mean, I would say quick, some quick wins is like something that, um, that the value is high. Um, but the cost of implementing it is very low. And then if you, and it's something that can be done very quickly within a few sessions. 
Um, I think that you will see more buy-in. Another thing is school districts love A, that you can show the data. If you can show data with graphs, that's great. And then also, if it doesn't cost money, that's another thing because we all have a budget <laughs> and school districts have a budget. I mean, the schools have a budget that they have to um, abide by and answer to. Um, so if you can keep the, I mean, if you can show that while also um, making sure that like there, it's not coming into the school budget or in that you can show the data, I think you will have a lot more um, quick wins and a lot of school and school buy-in. But there was a book that was posted that was really interesting that I want to read. Um, uh, I think it was, I think the book was called Quick Wins too. Was it? <laughs> yeah, I think it was called Quick Win Wins by, yeah, Quick Wins by, let me bring it up. By Paul Giovanni. Yeah, that's Ma the one I posted in the comments. Oh, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> perfect. All right. Um, any of our listeners have additional uh, thoughts? Oh, Hillary uh, made a really good point. She said it could be just being invited to the table or being asked for input. That's definitely a good way to get a quick win. Again, a lot of the times we get so focused in on certain pieces based on what we're there to do um, that we actually kind of <laughs> have a quick loss <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and kind of push people out to the side and, and ruin that relationship too quickly. Um, so that's definitely a good suggestion. Does anyone else have ideas about quick wins or research or resources relating to that before we move on to the next one? But that was a good point too, Megan, is that you have to um, keep the relationship between the superintendent or your principal um, close or those, those people above you um, and make sure that you're not, A, overstepping your, ba your boundaries. You, you, uh, anything you do, run it by them and give them your reason why. So I had a quick win this year with a um, couple of my students because so last year there both of these students had a lot of challenging behaviors um, and they had a lot of um, discipline incidents. What that looks like is like they were either um, secluded or place in a restraint uh, due to imminent risk of harm to others or themselves. This year, I have dramatically decreased that those restraints or, or seclusion or discipline incidents. Um, and I was able to gain a couple quick wins with what I'm doing and provided reasons why I'm doing this. And um, that has helped me out um, in, the, in my classroom to um, implement the things I want to implement to uh, to help out my students. Um, so that's another another thing that I've, I've done um, this year to get to 
um, to just have more buy-in with what I'm doing. Perfect. I love it. And that I think is helpful to thinking about yourself just as an individual. So maybe you're not going to impact a whole entire organization, but yeah. how can you get some quick wins? Um, and then maybe that'll have a trickle down um, effect or a domino effect of like other people doing similar things. Yeah. Just start small and then work way up and get, and when, uh, when a colleague comes to you, especially in the school setting, when a colleague comes to you, sit down and talk with them about their values and their um, what's important to them and what they're having difficulties with. And if they're open to um, listen to you for intervention ideas or just to like, just pick your brain. I mean, allow that time to happen because that's how we're going to make a meaningful change in the school setting. Yep. Okay, perfect. So do you want to do the next one on general education? Yeah. So we talked about, Oh, um, let's work on applying ABA to the gen ed classroom with gen ed teachers. I'm not talking about PBIS, and this includes social behavior, learned behavior, and academic behavior. Um, I think we touched on this um, before about, you know, working on applying ABA. I think the biggest thing is just working on um, getting that buy-in. Um, and then it also has to start at the university level. Like a lot of these, I mean, a lot of these um, new green teachers are coming into the school system. They should already have some um, background in ABA. So I think a lot of training needs to be done at, universe, at that university level too. With um, teaching, I mean, like, you know, getting our new teachers prepared for, for, for the skill. Yep, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There was a recommendation to check out Jean Donaldson's research. She's done several studies in gen ed classrooms in recent years, and her research is excellent quality. And I think for, um, I <coughs> can't remember, oh, Missy Olive was on um, the Behavioral Observations podcast recently and talked about kind of her track through special education into behavior analysis. And um, there was a little bit of a discussion about the different journals that are in that um, area. I think sometimes, again, we get kind of in this um, behavior analytic uh, tunnel and forget that there's stuff outside of our field that is behavioral in nature. So if you haven't, make sure to keep up with the research in journals like Journal of Exceptional Children um, or Teaching Exceptional Children. Um, some of the like autism and developmental disability journals. So looking more into the educational journals uh, that are not Java or behavior analysis in practice and the ones that we typically read in school can be really helpful too. They not always do conduct the research exactly how we would as behavior analysts, but it can at least a be a starting point for that conversation. If we're coming in with like, especially the teaching exceptional children is a practitioner journal and it's a lot of like how to really easy, more like kind of a magazine. Um, so it's a, a really easy way to sort of open up a conversation with someone that you know may not have a behavior analytic background um, and connect with them. And then we can 
you know, use that as a jumping off point, but some of the actual, you know, studies that are in the educational journals are more likely that if the teachers or people that you're working with in the school system are reading journals, they'll be familiar with that research. So if you're coming in with like naming off people (laughs) as behavior analysts that they have no idea who those people are, that's probably not going to be super helpful. But if you can come in with some of the suggestions from the journals that they would be more familiar with, that is probably going to get you a little bit further. And then sort of outside of the research realm, again, looking more at that connecting piece, the quick win there's so many resources that have been created for teachers, um, like the Teachers Pay Teachers website. Um, there's tons of YouTube videos of teachers who have uh, created YouTube pages to share what they're doing. So again, it's not research, but if you can consume some of those more like kind of social media versions of things, that could be helpful again with that connecting and rapport building piece too. Um, and then that can sort of branch over into, okay, here, let's do some research. I do have one person that I love to follow um, on Teachers Pay Teachers and um, um, who I love to follow. And then um, she also does a lot of awesome stuff with her school district. Um, Her name is, and she, I might butcher it, but Kaylin Elizabeth. Um, She's here in uh, the Virginia, uh, Hampton Roads area. And she does a lot of awesome, great stuff on teacher pay teachers. And then also she has a, um, uh, uh, Instagram account that I'll put a link to or put her tag or her uh, tag handle on. So then you guys can follow her as well. Perfect. And of course there's Sasha Long, if you're working specifically with autism, that does the autism helper. Um, she, has a website and a podcast and a lot of really great resources in that realm too. Um, Barbara asked, what do you do when the culture is resistant to any change because they are used to doing things the same way forever? I think that's where um, the book deliberate coaching might really come in to to help you, Barbara. Um, That's some of what Paul and Nick kind of talk about in that book. I haven't read it yet, but just based on seeing Nick present I think that's what they talk about. Um, And then also, again, looking outside of necessarily specifically behavior analysis and more into like motivational interviewing and collaboration research on how do you, you know, work groups work together. It's usually around finding similar values and your similar goals. Appreciative inquiry was created just for that process and being able to to come in as like the consultant and listen to the group and hear what their concerns are and move them towards action. So typically, again, there may be behavior analysts researching this. I haven't seen it, but some of those sort of behavior change type things that we would expect for our field to study haven't necessarily been studied because we know like the basic principles, we try to just get by on that as opposed to looking at some of the more structured approaches that have been created. So appreciative inquiry and motivational interviewing are two of the effective, more behaviorally based ones that I know of that would be helpful potentially in terms of learning more about that. Um, Okay, so the next one is systematic replications with adults with IDD and comorbid disorders other than ASD. I think we could all agree in general, like more research needs to be done with adults Um, and branching outside of autism. Unfortunately, this is where we also get into that convenience sample 
Um, and also grant money is, you know, abundant. Well, it's never abundant, but it's more prevalent in autism right now than anywhere else as far as I know. So that, that sort of guides where the research goes, but I definitely um, would agree that there needs to be more research being done with adults in general, but especially with different diagnoses. I don't really have anything to add to that one. <laughs> um, do you, Joe? Uh, no, I don't. Um, yeah, I, I really don't work with adults at all. So I have nothing to add to that one. Okay. I do know Rachel was on. I'm not sure if she's still on, but she was on at one point. Rachel um, Tullis, Dr. Rachel Tullis is at, is in Georgia and, uh, she does do work with adults and there's other individuals in the do better movement who work with adults as well. And they have some really great programs at her university to help support adults. I can't remember if it was just for autism though. I know when I was at Ohio state, the research that we did, um, we were working in high school settings a lot and we had a whole wide array of diagnoses. Um, the, the researchers at, um, the University of Texas, wait, is it, this is going to stop. I'm going to look like such an idiot right now. Texas, you know, Longhorns, Hook'em Horns. What is, is it? University of Texas? Is that the, um, I know I just always say Texas. Um, yeah. In Austin, they are doing a lot of, um, they have for years in their special ed, do a lot of work with like more significant disabilities. Um, and that usually in, includes adults too. Again, this is an area where I think if you look outside of the behavior analytic journals, you might find a little bit more work being done, but um, that's it. Thank you, Shelly. UT. <laughs> um, you, um, so again, looking into more of the journals outside, like especially just the disability journals, uh, but there's still, it's definitely an area that needs a ton more research. Thank you, Kat. UT Austin. I don't know why the words were not coming to my head. <laughs> Um, That's because you're an Ohio State fan. <laughs> probably. Although somehow randomly, my three and a half year old, we've never even like watched Texas football. But one night he just like laid down in bed and he was like, hook them, hook them horns. And I'm like, where did this come from? <laughs> That's awesome. Um, Selena said more better assessments for adults, skill development, staff training. And Kat said Texas Tech Burkhart Center is working with young adults. Um, but yeah, that's definitely, and again, you know, making sure that people are learning, I, it's embarrassing sometimes, but you know, you'll encounter people who are maybe trained with like younger populations and then they try to do the same type of work with adults they might be serving. And that obviously doesn't, doesn't translate. <laughs> um, okay. So the next one is more research into individuals with mental health diagnoses who are otherwise typically developing extensions of the treatment integrity research would be highly valuable too, especially outside of clinical settings. And um, I will say who wrote this one, so you all can keep an eye out for the research. Dr. Claire St. Peter suggested or said that her research group is working on several evaluations of treatment integrity with children without developmental disabilities in the school. So keep an eye out for that research um, forthcoming. And then, um, there was a comment that we're, that uh, the person's working with staff who may only have a high school diploma, and there's a big range in terms of capacity in the people who implement the plans. I know a treatment's allowable margin of error, so to speak. I'm better able to come up with effective plans that my staff can implement. 
I also find it helpful for staff who have had a bad day to know that the research says that a certain amount of error won't make or break the plan. And Dr. Um, St. Peter said expecting 100% fidelity all of the time is just unrealistic. Um, from her, their research, it looks like non-contingent reinforcement treatments are most likely to fall apart when fidelity is reduced and are the least predictable regarding effects of reduced fidelity. So you might want to avoid those if you think mistakes may be likely. That's interesting. I um, don't think I've seen that uh, research yet. Oh, that's because it's not published yet. <laughs> so <laughs> then Dr. Claire St. Peter said the NCR study is still underway, but she hopes to publish it later this year. Um, but kind of similar to the adults one, there's definitely more research in our field specifically that needs to be done with typical in typical classrooms or typical populations, but with um, mental health diagnoses or just in general with like no diagnoses, period. Do you have anything to add? Yeah. No, I mean, like that's, I mean, adults is like one area that I just don't know anything about. And that's okay too. It's like, I, I know I'm not gonna know everything. It's absolutely impossible. Um, but I would love to, I mean, there's a, I mean, there's definitely a need for it, especially with, um, our population becoming more and more, um, uh, there's, there's more of a population for adults and especially, um, just, I mean, like one thing that I would love more about too, is like working with adults who have dementia too, or Alzheimer's, um, just because, I mean, that's something that's personal to me and my wife, you know, we had, she had a grandmother who, um, has, who had Alzheimer's and dementia. And that's something that I, I like for me, like where I would love more research on and what can we do as a field to help out, um, individuals that suffer from this type of mental health, um, disease. Yeah. Um, so I know, and again, I haven't looked at the research lately, but, um, when I was at FSU, we, in our, one of our classes, we read Skinner's book, enjoy old age. So if you haven't read that one yet, it's a nice, quick, easy read, unlike verbal behavior. And, uh, we also read research, uh, from Jabba, but it was a little bit older, um, on some of the work that was being done. One of, one of the studies was a guy was a husband who, uh, was saying like mean things to his wife. Um, but he had, he was like dementia or Alzheimer's. I can't remember. And so they did a functional analysis and found out it was all attention maintained. So they trained the wife how to ignore the mean statements and they went away. Um, and then one of the other studies was on using like creating like photo books and going through those, um, to help keep their memories, um, and looking at what effect that would have just on overall functioning, and it was effective. I think they also, they use a photo book to like help with like their schedule for the day and things like that too. Um, so there is some research out there, but it's just not, not as much as needs to be. Um, Selena said, just getting a diagnosis of dementia and state funding is difficult, let alone having staff follow behavioral treatment recommendations. I think that the dementia and Alzheimer's are ones too, where like from a scalability perspective as a field, knowing what we know about human learning and behavior change, if, if anyone out there could create something that is super scalable and easy to disseminate, like a quick, easy app, <laughs> um, like, cause you see those like brain training ones and things like that, or, or people, um, have different, there's tons of, um, age 
specific things that people market and sell. So not saying we want to be like snake oil salesmen or anything, but if we could create something effective like that and get it widely disseminated, that's definitely a huge um, opportunity for effectively improving lives of people as they age. Um, Inar said that Eric Artson and Hannah Steinen, um, Sten, Stengrim's daughter, are now um, doing dementia research in Norway. So that keep an eye on them if you want to see more research on dementia. Um, there is a couple of other adult comments um, about, um, Enar also said that they're doing some studies at UVA and the Virginia Institute of Autism um, with adults. So that'll be uh, helpful and keep an eye out for that research as well as presentations at conferences. And um, I think that was it for those comments there. So this next one's a little bit, um, we've kind of touched on this a lot. So again, it's just another one about embedding ABA into the culture of schools. Uh, so I'm not going to read through this whole thing. I know that we have kind of beaten this one a bit. I just wanted, <laughs> um, I wanted to see if there was anything about um, any suge additional suggested resources, but I don't see any right now. There's kind of a mixture of comments about how there is research on using ABA in the schools and things like that. But obviously most of us are still encountering issues with even getting in the door <laughs> to, to work inside the schools and that kind of thing. So there's the research um, might need to be more focused on again, that collaboration and how do we sell ourselves um, and, and create those partnerships. I know when I was in Virginia, I had a client who like really needed some intensive intervention and the school was not getting trained on anything relating to her needs, but they were paying like thousands of dollars to fly some lady in from Minnesota who, when I went to her website, advertised herself as being, uh, teaching, um, karate. That was her background. And she was being brought in as their autism expert. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, what skills does she have, um, that she's getting these contracts to come into the schools? And that was their big sell. Like, well, we'll help you know, your child, because we're bringing in this autism expert who knows karate. Like what? When you have in Virginia, all of these other people around, including your own department of education that has behavior analysts working for it. And you're flying someone in from Minnesota to do karate. <laughs> what? So I think like learning more about how that culture works, um, is really important. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And then also I know Matt, uh, Sakuria also uh, had a great podcast on his uh, on his podcast about um, working with schools yes. um, that you definitely need to check out because he makes some um, some great suggestions um, that after listening to it, I totally one hundred percent agree with what his suggestions were. Um, it's been a while since I listened to it, but it's definitely. If you're not in the school system now, uh, it's definitely something to listen to if you want to get into the schools. Um, so that's a great resource to listen to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. And then the next one is the biggest problem I've seen is consistency from RBT staff to parents. There's always someone else doing the opposite of your intervention or changing it to their preference. The treatment doesn't generalize. I do think that people often the suggest I do think that often the suggested procedures are high response effort 
it's not realistic that people will fight through tantrums, especially in public, more treatment options for the real world versus the controlled environment. I think we kind of touched on this a little bit already too with the discussion earlier with Steve Ward's work. Um, and of course, if anyone that's on right now knows my soapboxes about um, <laughs> extinction and tantrums and things like that, I would suggest that we shouldn't be <laughs> in situations where people are needing to fight through tantrums, especially in public. Um, hopefully we can be coming up with better interventions than that. So the, like um, the poster said, that we can have more realistic, acceptable interventions. Um, and the work that Hanley's doing on skills-based treatment is one good step towards that in terms of creating things that are more realistic, but also like building up the ability to tolerate adversity and navigate things out in the real world for the clients that they're working with. So if you haven't seen Dr. Hanley's work on that, you can go to practicalfunctionalassessment.com and check out his skills-based treatment is one that, that's usually pretty easy to get everyone on board with. And the whole treatment is focused on using shaping to slowly build up and generalize to other environments. Joe, do you have anything to add to that one? No, I don't. Um, I think you nailed, um, nailed it on the head. Okay. But yeah, and I think looking at our research is important here, but also making sure our training programs are training people <laughs> how to create <laughs> real world interventions. That controlled environment piece, I think, is one downside to having a, a science-driven field, an applied science-driven field, because as researchers and scientists, the you want control. You want a controlled environment because for your outcomes and your study and to say exactly what variables influence those outcomes. But when we go into the real world and we're applying this with our clients, that's a completely different story. So how do we train people who are mostly going to be doing applied work, how to do applied work and not train them as if they're researchers? I've encountered quite a bit where um, you know, clinics or centers or schools are running their services as if they're conducting a study 24-7. And there's no flexibility there. They're, you know, making beautiful graphs, multiple baseline designs, reversals, and things like that. But there's no actual concern for the learner <laughs> and what's realistic and what's going to be effective for them. There's too much of a focus on the, like, controlled aspect of things. Do you want to do the next one, Joe? Yeah. Yeah, so the next one is um, fidelity. A program needs to be used with fidelity to get accurate data. Studies that go off-label, so to speak, muddy the waters for people making decisions off their research. Also, the still progressing understanding of the standard acceleration chart, the SCC, could truly make a difference in research. Much like the EKG is understandably by all, if the SCC was used was used the results would be easier to understand graphs can be easily manipulated the scc cannot be yep <laughs> I, I, and then um there was no comments made underneath that but um yeah i would love to use i mean i do not use a scc right now but i'm still i want to and start um using it in my classroom um i think the Biggest thing with that is um, just um, just using the graphs and working with the graphs and knowing how to um, write the I mean uh, 
and uh, just graph it correctly. Yes. <laughs> uh, um, and I think what's really exciting, and I'm not sure if the, the person who posted this is part of the research or not, but um, Dr. Kubina and Amy Evans and some of the other people from Chartlytics have been doing research. Um, they had, they presented, I think they presented on it. Yeah. Amy, I think Amy and Shelby presented at the standard acceleration conference on this research that they did, um, where they're taking baseline measures with companies that didn't use the standard acceleration chart and then they train them on how to use it and their um the number of decisions and times that they were reviewing the data and changes that they made was like ridiculously higher when they use the standard acceleration chart so for that reason alone like actually yeah. looking at your data and making decisions based off of it who would have thought um people don't necessarily do that as much when they're just using a regular equal interval graph but the way that the standard acceleration chart operates you're almost required you are required to be and you yeah. make moment to moment decisions so keep an eye on um on their research on this area uh, and hopefully that can be continue to be further disseminated, especially with Chartlytics being part of Central Reach now and more people having access to the standard acceleration chart um, and being able to be trained and understand it. Uh, and it's so funny because we, we have a few webinars we did this year um, with Amy. We did one with Kathy Fox, one with Mary Sawyer, one with mm -hmm. Amy Evans, um, all on the standard acceleration chart. And then I also did one in 2018 called Don't Be Scared of the Funky Blue Chart. So if you're wanting to learn a little bit more, you can check out the Do Better table and, it, and look for those different um, webinars. But Kathy Fox works at the Hoglin Learning Center in Columbus, Ohio, and they're teaching their young like students that are five years old and have usually an autism diagnosis or some other learning disability how to chart. So um, if you're thinking as an adult, you can't learn how to use the standard acceleration chart and five-year-olds are learning how to do it, I think you might be wrong. Um, so just like something to keep in mind. Yeah, I think also it's just getting in the habit of for like in the school system, it's like it just getting in the habit of doing it while teaching because I feel like um, as a as a teacher, um, we get so caught up with the day, like we're thinking like twenty steps ahead, what we need to do for for the upcoming to keep the classroom flowing and also to decrease and, and minimize any time. I mean, any downtime uh, that we have in the classroom, um, and I think that's a barrier for teachers. Um, that would be something that. I feel like for as teachers that we would need model like how to have it set up so then we can implement it um, in the classroom quickly um, and have that system in place because I know for me like I'm using this break to um, just get things done around the house but like there there are so many things that need to be done in the classroom. Like I have a list of like 20 things that need to be done from the classroom before I go back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I think that's just something that maybe uh, can be looked at a little bit more, maybe more training videos. Maybe um, that's something that can be done. Um, maybe there's something like that out there already. Yeah. And I, well, I know, I mean, a lot of the research initially that was done in precision teaching, the whole reason that 
Og Lindsley, you know, developed the standard acceleration chart was like the schools that they were working in and the teachers he was training and it improved their ability to teach. But he was also doing it at a time in our country where there was a much more except I think I wasn't alive, so I don't really know, but I think it was a lot more acceptable to be data driven and scientific in the schools than it seems to currently be today. Um, so how do you kind of mesh with some of the, the differences in the culture now with the, the way that schools are set up and including the chart, um, I think is an important area to look at too, especially um, when we can't even get behavior analysts to use the chart. Yeah. I mean, like right now, like in the school settings, we're so data driven now um, and they're starting to implement OBM um, principles already with, um, with um, evaluations and working with teachers, um, which is great, but it's just, I mean, eventually I can see us using more charts and more data, but that I can see how beneficial right now in this time, I mean, right now in this time period of education, how the SEC um, would be really, would mesh with schools. It's just having the higher, I mean, like just the central reach, I mean, the central office or the superintendent to really get on board also with us and start implementing these things with us. Yeah. So. Yeah, and you say that you're that it's data driven and the OBM and all that, but that's not necessarily the case in all the schools. <laughs> you know, so yeah, I'm in a unique setting. So, um, but I think so. The draft, the data that is being done right now is focused on behavior, um, and also academics. Mm -hmm. But that's where the chart can come and play because the chart is. Definitely, I mean, it's for those academic um, tasks, too. Yes. So, I mean, right now, I think um, there might, I mean, there, I mean, it, it's the right, it's the right time for the charts come into play. Yes. It's just getting there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The next one is about conducting more research in our field and providing ABA to children who've experienced significant trauma along with providing parent training to caretakers that have experienced significant trauma. I didn't have a chance to comment on this one, but if you haven't looked at the research from um, Dr. Jeannie Golden, she's at um, East Carolina University. She does has been researching this area for a really long time. She presents at FABA frequently. She did an amazing Ignite this year at FABA, um, five minutes to present on something. And a lot of people do very, um, it's kind of gotten to the point where a lot of people do very entertaining presentations, which is cool. But Jeannie really um, just hammered at home regarding how we are developing our challenging behavior interventions and the importance of considering trauma and not using things like escape extinction or planned ignoring and things like that. Um, this is really powerful, but she has a ton of research and then her students do as well. I think she's more focused on trauma with children and like foster care. Um, but that's one line to look in. And I think also, again, outside of behavior analysis, there probably is quite a bit of research that again, we could look at for initial ideas and then create our own research or apply the behavior analytic lens to it. I would um, add as well, training um, practitioners on how to 
navigate that as well. Like how do you need to adjust your interventions and how do you work, especially with the caretakers that have experienced significant trauma. A lot of us work with military populations who, I mean, we've been in war in the war zone for how long now? (laughs) It's almost 20 years. Um, So, you know, there's obviously a lot going on with that and not just like, you know, what the military member might experience that's deploying, but the the family members who are at home as well and and dealing with that. So, um, so we're all working usually with a population where even though some of our ideas of what significant trauma is may vary. um, I think I can't remember when I touched on this or if I touched on this, but thinking too about, again, we all sort of have our history and things that come to us when we think about trauma, but some of um, the authors who write about what it's like to, um, to have an autism diagnosis. So uh, Sean Baron Cohen, uh, Brenda, no, I'm sorry, Donna Smith, um, Williams, uh, obviously Temple Grandin, and there's some others out there talk about being autistic and what that's like. And it, sometimes it sounds like just their everyday lived experience is very traumatic. There's a lot going on for them um, that's com- completely different experience than what we have without uh, having an autism diagnosis. So I think that's important to take into account too. Like what, what is that effect does that have on someone to like wake up every day and be going through whatever they're physiologically experiencing in their, just their life existing, um, as, as a person <laughs> with this diagnosis, right? Um, and um, so we need to, you know, kind of take that into account as well. Um, my son, he's three and a half, and he hasn't experienced significant trauma that I'm aware of, but even his reaction to things as a three and a half year old that are traumatic to him um, and seeing the differences in his skill set and how much less he's able to function just from, you know, like not getting enough sleep or being overly hungry those aren't traumatic. Um, you know, I don't want to, to kind of make it seem unimportant or anything like that, but just seeing how those things affect his performance and his behavior. Um, and then you think about people that have, that have experienced or are experiencing significant trauma and what effect that could have for them. Um, if, if just normal everyday life can have effects on our behavior. I agree. Like with Trump, like, even with me, like in the school setting, I mean, we are working with a lot of kids who have trauma, experienced significant trauma in their life and how to work with that. Um, we have seen a difference in that. Like I've been working for the same school system for 11 years now. And I have seen a difference from the time I started to now with the, um, with students who we're working with in the population. There's a lot more... Um, students who are who are exposed to significant amount of trauma and as teachers we're feeling i know like in just in our building alone that we're questioning like how do i help out this student who experiences significant trauma in their life um and it and they could be still experiencing trauma in the home as we're teaching i mean like as we're working with them this year yep in and it's not getting easier for them. It's, there's more things that are happening in the home that as a teacher, I can help them at school, but once they leave my classroom, I can't help them. And that's scary to think. Like I, I do think about that um, at night when I'm home, like 
wondering how this student is doing, what my day tomorrow is going to be like for a student. Um, so I think there's definitely needs to be more research in that as well. Um, I'm definitely going to check out that, um, that podcast that you suggested too, um, by Evelyn Gold. It's Jeannie Golden. Um, she doesn't have a podcast, just research. Oh, okay. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think her Ignite um, was published. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, I don't think anybody filmed it or anything like that. So, um, but she has a lot of really great research that uh, should come up. Probably, out, I don't think it's published in Java or anything like that. It's usually bigger journals. Okay. Um, okay, then our next one is having a non-sanitized environment. We kind of talked about this as well. It was in the school setting, but same thing would apply for the home setting um, and doing more small group designs. Um, and Ryan chimed in that Melissa Nosek, whose um, dissertation research at UNR was um, a summary of distraction research. So if anybody's interested in learning more about that, you could check out um, just look up Melissa Nosek in distraction and dissertation and it'll probably come up. I'll try to find it myself and put it in the show notes. Um, I don't really have anything to add to that one because I feel like we kind of talked about it a little bit. Yeah, I have nothing to add to that either. And then we have time and staff when working in the school, having staff out. I think we've touched on this a bit as well. Ryan suggested that Pat Fryman did some research on this topic in the early 90s of like how to function properly when you're low on staff. Uh, so if you're interested, check that out. And again, I'll try to look it up and find it for the show notes. Do you have anything yeah, to add? Because I, yeah, believe, because I run into the situation at my setting too. Um, we're just low on staff and then, you know, the implement, I mean, the interventions we have in place, um, it's very difficult to um, do that with fidelity at times. Um, yeah. and make for a very tricky situation. So yeah. I would love to share that with my staff too. Okay. I will look that up. I think it's going to be a little bit trickier than just doing a quick Google search. Um, okay. So let me, <laughs> do you mind read the next one? Yeah, go for it. All right. Sweet. All right. So the next one is, um, just a solid sentence. It's uh, social thinking, executive functioning, developmental stages. Um, and Ryan um, chimed in on this, and I'm going to butcher his name. Um, Sid Bajoji has had some uh, cool work in this area, and there's a book by Hank Skillinger. Hey, yeah, Sid Bijou and Hank Schlinger. Okay, thank you. Uh, with cool perspectives on that too. We also pulled a few episodes out of research into a series on uh, why we do what we do. Um, and he already posted that podcast on the feed, but I can actually um, also continue that on our feed, on the Facebook live feed. Perfect. Um, do you have anything to add to that? Um, I mean, I do, again, I think it's another one that's, there's tons of research if you look outside of behavior analysis, but it's how do we, and I think I put this in one of my suggestions as well, but how do we train <laughs> behavior analysts to incorporate that information in their program development and to learn about these types of things. And then also getting more behavior analysts to study 
these areas as well to make sure we're infusing our science with the, um, the research that's already being done by people in other fields. All right. And then the next one is from um, Kelsey. Full parent-run programs. There are kids all over the world who may be able to afford some BCBA oversight, but have no therapist or RBT. I love to see more research based on this versus programs that are RBT and clinic-run because no country outside the USA supports this type of intervention. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> And I, so for this one, um, Dr. St. Peter suggested the telehealth, and this is where she referenced specific groups. So Dorothea Lerman and Tara Fami um, are both doing research in this area. So for those of you that are interested in learning more about telehealth, um, you can look there. And then I also suggested Amy Weatherby has been doing research on this for autism. Specifically, she's at Florida State University. She's not a behavior analyst. She's a uh, I consider her an autism expert and she has, I think, I, it's not just my opinion. <laughs> I think she's, she has that our, our, uh, title earned um, with the grants and various research she's been doing for the last, you know, probably 20 to 30 years. But anyway, um, one of the big issues that, again, I've seen with the, the research that she's done and others have done is that scalability so there are some effective models out there. Um, and Mary Barbera, it's not necessarily a research course, but she has her course for toddlers. Um, and then, you know, like the Early Start Denver model has some courses and they're doing some things as well for early intervention. There's various things that have been created that show effectiveness, but getting that scaled and used um, has, seems to be one of the big issues too. And then th this is also where Ryan suggested the Answers Now um, resource from, from Adam Dreyfus. So, so that's, yeah, that's all I have because I, that's an area that I'm not familiar with at all. Um, do you want to go to the next one? Sure. And of course, if anyone has additional comments, feel free to chime in. We're kind of rushing through them since we've been on for so long at this point. Um, so uh, thank you all for that are still here or have joined recently. The next one, and I think this is a super important one, is do kids really need so many hours per week of therapy? I live and work in a country where ABA is not covered by insurance, so most people self-pay and the hours are super limited. I've seen amazing progress with just two and a half hours per week, and it makes me wonder if 25 to 30 is actually beneficial. I'm sure my clients would do better with 10 hours a week, but it seems like there is a point of diminishing returns. And I commented that we definitely need more dosing research, that there's some research um, done, again, with FSU and Amy Weatherby's group. Um, they have an intervention called Early Social Interaction, where the parents receive coaching and training the children didn't receive direct intervention and it was effective. UC Davis with Sally Rogers and Geraldine Dawson with the Early Start Denver model have published research showing effectiveness with less intervention and using a parent coaching model as well. Um, some, there was a comment about um, a child being diagnosed with autism at two and getting 40 hours per week and already being done with intervention because he's at his age appropriate level at three. So that's awesome. And of course, that's like ideal, right? But <laughs> unfortunately, not always are those resources available. Um, and especially as kids get older, um, there was a suggestion that the intervention needs to start earlier. So for children at 12 months old, when developmental 
milestones like product proto declarative pointing turn taking are emerging take advantage of brain plasticity reciprocity is so much of life um, and the earlier that learning starts so you know that learning about being able to engage in reciprocal interactions happens um, the easier it is for the child in whatever setting they end up in even five to ten minutes a day from a parent at 12 months old um, would have exponential returns and this is a lot of what the research from Amy Weatherby, Dr. Amy Weatherby, and Dr. Sally Rogers, and Dr. Geraldine Dawson, and a lot of that group that studies the more like naturalistic developmental behavior interventions has done. They're like looking a lot at how do we train the parents to interact with um, young, very young children. Uh, usually, as, as some children, if they have a sibling diagnosed, they try to start at birth even, right? So if they have an older sibling diagnosed, like training the parents how to have those interactions with their their um, children that are born after that. And I commented that um, we need to make sure if we're providing early intervention, we are focusing on these developmental skills and others. So like reciprocity and pointing and turn-taking and all that kind of stuff, as opposed to a lot of our programming focuses more on um, academics and object-focused targets that really have nothing to do with being two or three or teaching social communication um, skills. And then Ryan said, predictive analytic along this route are being worked by a few focus groups, nothing out yet, but some groups formed this year and a few companies are positioned to start, start crunching data for this. Yeah. And I'm, my biggest thing would be, um, as long as with ours, it's, just a, it's like it's based off of whatever is medically necess I mean, necessary for that client. Um, and that's how much we, we would prescribe what is necessary for that client. Yes. And we have that luxury, right. With having insurance and that kind of thing. But even then there's begs a question, like where's the research to show what is medically necessary. We base it off of our clinical expertise right now, but it would yeah. be nice to have. And that's where some of the work I think that Rick Kubina and the chartlet group yep. now central reach is doing with the chart is going to be really helpful. Um, because again, if you're looking at the standard acceleration chart and you can see, uh, the, the aim line and where they should be going to meet their goals, it's a lot easier to predict <laughs> how much treatment you're going to need than if you're just kind of pulling it off of baseline measures and you don't have an actual measure of their learning rate. Um, if we have a measure of learning rate, maybe they're only a times 1.1, which would mean they're learning at a very kind of, you know, steady pace versus if they're a times three learner and they just like master stuff really quickly, then your yeah. dosing is likely going to be a lot less. Yes. That's awesome. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm excited to see that. Um, I know. So, but no, um, so let's move on. Um, so what I'm planning to do, because we're closing in on two hours and I know everyone probably has stuff to do. I'm going to finish. Um, we'll do like one or two more and then maybe we'll do another episode down the line and finish out or you and I might just do a normal one because a lot of the ones remaining are like me. <laughs> There's a few other people, but a lot of them are mine and we can have an episode about that anytime we want. So um, the next one is uh, home setting applications of ABA. Home settings are messy in terms of variables and full of barriers. Um, I feel as though I'm constantly making more ethical choices because I struggle to run things like it's put out in the research. Everything seems clinic based and I rarely seem the same items applied 
to other settings. Again, I think we've kind of talked about this one as well in terms of like the flexibility and whatnot, but there, I mean, it's true. A lot of the research that's been done, if you look at the articles, they're not in a client's home doing these things. They're at a center or a university and they teach some very isolated skills or they provide intensive intervention. But again, it's at a center. They're not going into um, the home. However, some of the research that I've already mentioned, at least for early intervention with Dr. Amy Weatherby and the early social interaction, they, they did kind of a mixture of home and like a class for the parents. And then the work that they're doing with the Early Start Denver model, they have various ways. They have a school version, a home version, um, and they do like a parent coaching version. So there's different um, research studies that have been done based on the environment there. But I think, again, if you, like we talked about when you're doing research, you're trying to keep it controlled. So a lot of the times people don't want to take that risk of being messy and going into the homes. And then, yeah, um, I, I would love to see this too, because um, I, I struggle with this as well, because there is definitely a difference between working in the home than a sterile clinical setting, um, most definitely. <laughs> Um, especially depending on the family dynamic and how many kids are also in the home as well. Um, it it creates a, a challenge. Yes. And again, I think that also drives back into our training programs and making sure that we're training people. Yes. Mm -hmm. Research is important. This is how you read it and consume it, but this is research in a controlled setting. How do you tease that out and apply it to the environment you're working in? You do not have to directly replicate the research study, um, yeah. but that that goes back to that fidelity one about like, well, which pieces are critical? Um, what are the critical features of this? If I water it down too much, are we wasting our time kind of thing? So I don't know how many university programs are providing that kind of training. I know at Florida State, I received that kind of training where we would read articles and then our exams and our, um, you know, different homework assignments and whatnot was like, take what they found in this research study and use it to develop a program for your clients, right? Use it to like develop an effective intervention and like a real, you know, here's some, you know, scenario or take one of your real cases that you're working on right now and take into account those environmental settings and create something and justify it and explain why you think it's going to be effective. And we would have to look at things like in the article, what their strengths and limitations were and what the things were that the authors highlighted as the critical features if we were lucky enough that they did that and use that to help develop our rationale of okay I did it this way because the author said x y and z and the client a b and c you know and we had to pull all of that stuff together but I don't think that a lot of training programs are going through that process it's beaten into a lot of people's heads that you need to look at the research but then it doesn't go beyond that (laughs) hey I looked at the research now what yeah, yeah, that's that's awesome, Megan. That that um, F, um, that's being done there. But no, I mean that's a great practice, and um, I, I I agree. I mean, we should look at the components and see what is um critical to use um for. I mean, what what's the most important components of that um, intervention and then apply that in the home setting. And then if it's not going to work, don't use it. (laughs) Right. Yes, exactly. Okay. So we, I'm just going to 
like for my own purposes. So we stopped at the question. We're not going to go into the next one, but on the thread there, the next one is about shortening the time from research to dissemination. So if we record another podcast episode or do another live where we discuss these, that's where we'll start um, discussing. And of course, if anyone's interested, feel free to add your own additional research thoughts either on this um, Facebook Live or on the thread from the Do Better group. I will post a link to it um, so that people can, hopefully I'll post a link to it. I think I can do that um, so that people can go to it. Uh, we really appreciate everyone participating in this um, and in really actively interacting with us about uh, this discussion on the research to practice gap. I know some people are just joining us, so thank you for joining. Um, but we are going to go ahead and close out right now. Again, feel free to add your own comments and thoughts about the research to practice gap or how I like to call it, the practice to research gap. <laughs> and um, in this podcast episode, will be airing in February as our February episode. So thanks everyone for joining us. Yeah, thank you everyone. Thank you for being active and let's continue this conversation because I think it's important for uh, not only us to discuss, but it to be um, disseminated to other people as well um, in the field so then we can continue the conversation. So thank you. You guys are awesome. <laughs> Bye everybody. Bye. Okay.